Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is finally 2023, January the 2nd, 2023, a Monday. We've arrived in the new year with a thud. Uh, and as most of you will have probably already discovered, it's not the promised land. It's not much different from 2022. And we're back on keen on to talking about stuff which can be quite chilling and depressing, complicated subjects with difficult answers. We've done some shows on the shame of the American criminal justice system. We could dedicate an entire series to that, did one with Jonathan Rapping last year on Gideon's Promise and another one with uh, David Rudolph on uh, American injustice. I don't think there's any debate that there are severe, if not structural problems with the American justice system. Perhaps some people might call it the injustice system. We've also done many shows over the years on feminism of one kind or another. Last year, we did everything on feminism from a 20th century history of skirts to a, a critique of, of white feminism with uh, the polemicist Kyla uh, Schuler, a book called The Trouble with White Women. And we're kind of bringing all this stuff together, feminism and injustices in the American uh, criminal justice system with our guest today, uh, a professor of law, uh, Lee Goodmark, who has a new book out. It's actually out at the beginning, uh, the end of January, but you can order it now. It's called Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. That's quite a title. Um, Lee is joining us from just south in of Baltimore today. She looks like she's in the dark, but she isn't. She just doesn't have a lot of lighting in her room, but at least her face is lit up. Lee, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, I'm not sure whether it's appropriate, Lee. Uh, I don't think your book is probably the most cheerful of books. And perhaps in a way, it's a good book to begin um, uh, 2023 with. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book. I think it'll be seen by some of our viewers and listeners as, as somewhat counterintuitive, particularly from a, a liberal or progressive sensibility. I think that's a fair statement. Um, I've been representing victims of intimate partner violence for the last 25 years. And over that time have become quite critical of the legal system's response to intimate partner violence, have written about the many ways that the criminal legal system fails to decrease or deter intimate partner violence. And about nine years ago started representing criminalized survivors of violence, people who had been incarcerated for crimes related to their own victimization. And it was really doing that work and being in and out of prisons all the time that made me write this book, um, which looks at the ways that the legal system punishes victims of violence, starting in youth and young womanhood um, or young childhood and going through the entire criminal legal system through post-conviction and parole and uh, commutation. And the premise of the book is simply that the criminal legal system not only 
fails to do the work that we think that it is doing in preventing intimate partner and other forms of gender-based violence, but that it's actually hurting the people who ostensibly it was meant to protect in a, in a variety of different ways. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a controversial thesis. Um, are you focusing exclusively in this book on uh, female survivors? Because of course, I'm guessing, I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm guessing in um, domestic violence cases, some of, some of the victims, if that's the right word, are men. Some victims are men, certainly. I am focused on both female survivors and trans and gender nonconforming people because they are victimized at much higher rates, according to the latest federal statistics, than... Uh, what, what are the... Um, how does that break down in terms of those statistics? About 85% of the victims of intimate partner violence, for example, are women, uh, according to the federal statistics. And then when you start talking about male victims, sometimes we're talking about trans relationships, sometimes we're talking about uh, gay and straight relationships. So those numbers get a little bit more difficult to decipher, but it's pretty clear that the vast majority of people that we're talking about are, uh, it, at least when we're talking about criminalized survivors, uh, people who've been convicted of crimes related directly to their own victimization are women or trans and gender nonconforming people. You wrote an interesting piece, uh, an op-ed for the New York Times back in 2019, stop treating domestic violence differently from other crimes. Is that the problem? Because my, my immediate sense, having seen the title of your book and having, think, having thought about these things very much as a non-specialist, is that uh, a man who's guilty of beating his, his wife or his girlfriend should go to jail. Um, is, is the law differently? Uh, is domestic violence treated differently under the law from other crimes? Is that the problem? The headline in that piece refers to a specific context, and the context is in criminal system reform. So the argument in that piece is that we should stop treating domestic violence as though it can't be part of criminal system reform in the way that other crimes are treated differently under criminal system reform. So for example, under bail reform or under discovery reform. Um, but your intuition is one that I've been tackling for quite a long time now, which is that we should incarcerate people for domestic violence. And the reason you know, that I think that's problematic for people is that we've been told justice equates with punishment. But if you take retributive punishment out of the conversation and you start to think about why it is that we want to punish people, if what we're trying to accomplish is to decrease intimate partner violence, if what we're trying to accomplish is to deter intimate partner violence, criminalization and particularly incarceration is not doing that work. Uh, criminalization actually exacerbates many of the correlates of intimate partner violence, including economic stress and the infliction of trauma. And so if what we want to do is stop that violence, using the criminal legal system is a particularly bad way actually to do that. If you want punishment, if you want retribution, the state and the criminal legal system are the only game in town. I'm less interested in that and more interested in stopping the behavior. And to stop that behavior, criminalization is not gonna do that work. You wrote in a blog, um, violence will never solve the problem of violence. Are you treating, or do you think of incarceration as a form of violence in some ways equivalent to the original quote-unquote crime? I do think of incarceration as violence. I don't draw equivalences between the two. Um, they're different things, but as someone who has been going into prisons kind of week in and week out for the last nine years, I personally have come to believe that prison is a form of violence that we should not inflict on anyone, 
for any reason. Uh, and that's an odd position for somebody who started out as a victim side lawyer and as somebody who in that piece that you just referenced says pretty clearly, I was a carceral feminist, that term that refers to kind of a belief in the ability of the state uh, through punishment to change behavior. I truly believed in that as a young lawyer. And what's changed for me is being in prisons. So I've learned, I've read the research, I've done the work, but I've also spent a lot of time with people who are incarcerated. And what I think, you know, as a result of that experience is that prisons don't change behavior in any kind of positive way, that they in fact inflict all kinds of violence on people and that it's not a supportable institution. You have this term in the subtitle, criminalized survivors. Are you arguing, Lee, that many of the survivors of domestic violence become criminalized because they are inevitably thrust into the criminal justice system because they have to visit their partner in jail? Or are you suggesting that they come under the suspicion of the state because they're involved in this crime? Uh, very much the latter, that they not only come under the suspicion of the state, but that they are arrested, they are prosecuted, they are convicted, and they are incarcerated as a result, as a direct result of the gender-based violence that they've experienced. So the classic example is, uh, say, a victim of intimate partner violence who fights back against their partner and is incarcerated mm. for fighting back, whether that inflicts you know, small injury or grievous injury. But there are a number of other ways that this happens as well. There are victims of trafficking who are criminalized for acts that they do at the behest of under the duress of their traffickers. Um, there are people who act under the duress of their intimate, partner, uh, intimate partners. There are people who are arrested wrongfully. Um, there are people who are, are arrested and held as witnesses, as material witnesses, because they don't want to testify against their partners. So there are so many different scenarios that I could offer you about how criminalized survivors end up incarcerated or at least under the power of the criminal legal system in a variety of different ways. I've done a number of shows also on policing. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Alex Vitale, another progressive scholar. He has a controversial book out, The End of Policing, in which he argues that local police forces should be replaced with social workers and other community organizers and activists. Are, are you sort of buying into the Vitale argument and in, in the sense that presumably after some, ex after domestic violence, something has to happen. You, you can't just leave it alone, but do we need to replace the police with criminal activists? What, uh, not criminal, sorry, communal activists. What, I mean, what, what are you suggesting the structural reform should be in terms of the process of dealing with domestic violence? So in my second book, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, I make this case at great length that rather than seeing intimate partner violence as a criminal system problem, that we see it as an economic problem, a community problem, and a public health problem. And what that means is investing very differently in things like preventative programs, programs that uh, take care of child abuse and neglect, programs that provide education for adolescents, dealing with the economic stress and the economic inequality that helps to foster violence, and also looking at community-based responses to intimate partner violence. So you're right, we can't just not do anything about the problem or pretend that it doesn't exist. But the hope is that through a combination of preventative work, structural work, and then having really meaningful community-based alternatives to policing, 
we can do a better job. It's worth mentioning that tr police do a tremendous amount of gender-based violence. Police are responsible for a huge amount of gender-based violence and police are responsible for intimate partner violence as well. So I've asked for quite a while now, are these really the first responders we want? People who we know are committing acts of intimate partner violence at higher rates, people who are committing acts of rape and sexual assault against the people that they're supposed to be helping, all of this stuff has been documented for quite a while, and yet we continue to act as though policing is our only alternative for responding to intimate partner violence. That's not true. It doesn't have to be that way. It's just our default. Your, your critique then is quite a, a deep one, a structural one. Some people might say, well, this is all very well, and maybe there's some truth to it. But on a day-to-day -day level, domestic violence continues. And the chances of such deep structural reform aren't particularly realistic in America, divided politically, where doing anything, particularly on such a controversial subject, is very hard. How would you respond to that criticism? I think if we give up in that way, then, yeah, you can, you can just throw up your hands and say, this problem is too big to be solved. We're fine with the way that things are. I refuse to think that way. And I think there are small steps that we can take along the way that enable us to get closer, at least, to those kinds of structural reforms. Doing meaningful preventative work, for example, is something we can absolutely do. We can take the billions of dollars that we pour into courts and police and prosecutors now for very little return and put that into prevention as well, into evidence-based programs with strong data behind them that help to prevent intimate partner violence. We can create community-based resources and support community-based resources that will do some of that work. So while we may not have the wholesale change you know, tomorrow that both incorporates the kind of structural economic reform that's absolutely necessary to address this problem, but also moves away entirely from police into more sustainable and I, I think more effective forms of intervention, there are all kinds of steps along the way that we could be taking. Lee, you're intimately familiar with this. It's not a cheerful subject. Most of us aren't. What are, what, with your knowledge, what most surprises people who don't know much about this, of the reasons for domestic violence? You talk about prevention, but in order to figure out how to prevent, you, you need to understand causes. So, 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 so what is surprising when you look into the data, when you do your research? I think what surprises people the most is the idea that people can both have experienced trauma themselves and be using violence in their relationships. Very few people come to violence for the first time as a perpetrator. Most people have been harmed in some way, have experienced trauma in some way. And we tend to move away from that as an explanation for people's use of violence because it feels like an excuse. It's not an excuse, but it is an explanation. And people are often surprised to hear that people who've experienced trauma themselves then go on to inflict it on other people. I think people are also resistant to the idea that economics has a strong role to play in intimate partner violence, but the data on this is crystal clear that lower income women particularly suffer intimate partner violence at much higher rates, that male under and unemployment is one of the most significant correlates for the perpetration of intimate partner violence, and that doing something to alleviate economic inequality could decrease violence pretty significantly. Lee, how do the, the women the survivors, the victims of this respond to your argument. I'm assuming that having been smacked around by their partner, they're probably not particularly sympathetic, but I'm also guessing uh, after some time of reflection, they might be more open to rethinking this. 
It depends quite a bit on how people understand justice. So for people who've been taught all their lives that justice equates to criminal punishment, they're pretty resistant to the argument that criminalization isn't doing the work that we say that it's doing. Because for them, justice feels like punishment. And I completely understand that. I have clients who feel the same way. But there are lots of people who say justice for me isn't punishment. It's having somebody to meaningfully co-parent with me. It's having acceptance in my com community. It's having this relationship, but not having it be violent. And of course, the subjects of the new book, Imperfect Victims, have seen firsthand that criminalization is a terrible way to address intimate partner violence. Many of them are incarcerated specifically because of that violence. And it's important to note that some of the things that we've put into place to deal with intimate partner violence have had what people used to call the unintended consequence, but I just don't think you can call it unintended anymore because we've known for quite some time of making criminalization more prevalent among women. So for example, in the early days of the anti-violence movement, one of the things that advocates fought for pretty strongly was mandatory arrest. The idea that police would not be allowed to use their discretion when they came to the scene of a domestic violence crime, but instead would be required to make an arrest whenever they had probable cause to do so. And the idea there was that police were not acting to protect people and it was important to ensure that they would make arrests. Not surprisingly, after the inception of mandatory arrest laws, arrest rates went up significantly. But what no one anticipated was that they would go up for women more than anyone else and by significant amounts. Not because women had all of a sudden become more violent, but because of the ways that police were implementing those laws. So police would come to the scene of a crime of domestic violence and they would hear one person say, this is what happened and the other person say, this is what happened and say either, well, he has defensive injuries, he has scratch marks, or he has something that I can see, and I can't see any injuries on you. So clearly you're the perpetrator. Or would say, well, you say this and he says that, I'm taking you both and I'm arresting both of you. And those rates have stayed high even though this research has existed for quite some time. And so this, these consequences of criminalization have come to rest pretty strongly on the backs of the people they were meant to protect. I think that's something that people are surprised at. Lee, what about the role of alcohol and illegal or perhaps even legal drugs? I, I know in the in the 19-teens and 1920s, one of the key arguments for prohibition was were taken by women because uh, they saw that the violence of their, their husbands or boyfriends in the context of alcohol. Um, so, so two questions there. Firstly, do you see the role of alcohol and, and drugs particularly in, 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 in this? And secondly, in terms of domestic violence, is it worse today in the 2020s than it was in the, the 1920s? I think it's hard to know, taking the second question first, it's very hard to know whether it's worse today than it was then. We don't have records that are particularly good from that time. Um, there are legal historians who've looked at the response to intimate partner violence historically and who would argue that even though there's kind of this standard narrative that says prior to the 1970s, we weren't doing anything about intimate partner violence in the United States. In fact, there was a pretty robust criminal system response. Um, so back into the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. In terms of alcohol, particularly, there is a strong relationship between alcohol and the perpetration of intimate partner violence. Uh, violence is much more likely to be severe and to cause injury when someone is drinking. And again, this is one of those things that people are uncomfortable with because it feels again like an excuse rather than an explanation. 
Uh, but in fact, there's a strong relationship. The relationship between substance abusing and intimate partner violence is a little bit more complicated. Although substances can be used in a number of different ways. They can be used to control a partner. They sometimes can lower someone's inhibitions, making them more likely to be abusive, but they can also blunt anger. So the data on that is a little bit more mixed, but certainly the data on alcohol is pretty clear that the more somebody is drinking, um, the more likely they are to be more violently abusive. We haven't talked about the F word in all this, and I think it applies both to the criminal justice system and relationships of one kind or another. Forgiveness. Um, it, it, how does this become incorporated? One of my instincts about the problems with the American injustice, injustice system or justice system is that it hasn't figured out how to make sense of forgiveness. What's your take on that and the issue of uh, particularly women being willing to forgive their partners for violence, particularly if it's uh, through alcohol or, or, or some other drug? One of the things that we haven't explored as much as that I hope that we will in the coming years is how we can use things like restorative justice to respond to intimate partner violence. Restorative justice is the idea that um, one can... Um, respond to violence rather than through punishment as a harm and ask what was the harm that was done here? What was the impact of that harm and what needs to be done to make it right? So forgiveness can be part of that, but it's a little tricky because one doesn't want to create a situation where somebody who has done harm is in the position of saying, but please forgive me and put that onus on the person who has been harmed to have to forgive them in order to maintain status within the community, look as though they are kind of the better person. I think less about forgiveness and apology than I do about what's, what needs to be done to right the harm. And if what the person who has been harmed wants is an apology and they're willing to exercise forgiveness, then certainly that's a wonderful thing but it's not something we should ask of victims as a matter of course. It's there to give, but not to be requested. That being said, there are a substantial number of people who very much want to stay in their relationships. They simply want them not to be violent anymore. And I think that the idea that motivates me is how do we find ways for people to safely be in relationship with the people that they want to be in relationship with? And can restorative justice and this idea of addressing harm in ways that hold people meaningfully accountable be a part of that overall idea? It's a very sad subject on many levels and perhaps the most tragic element we haven't even talked about, the children involved. How do they fit into your, to your theory of in, imperfect vic victims? Presumably most kids don't want to see either of their parents carted off to jail. And that's absolutely true. And one of the things that I've been privileged to do in the time that I've been representing criminalized survivors is to see what happens to relationships, particularly between incarcerated mothers and their children over time. What we do in the name of justice to these families is an absolute shame. Uh, people are forced to grow up without either parent in their lives. They're forced to try to remake family in some kind of way. Uh, the, the biggest victims really of all of this are children in that their parents are taken away from them and they're 
they have these very strained and difficult relationships. And even after parents are released from incarceration, it can be really hard to rebuild those ties and to rebuild that trust. Those relationships are never what they would have been had these parents not been incarcerated in the first place. And it's funny, not in an ironic kind of way, that one of the reforms that people talk about in terms of the criminal legal system is how do we create spaces where mothers and children can bond in their early years? And they do that, for example, through creating mother-child prison programs, basically incarcerating children along with their mothers, as though this is mm. kind of the healthy and smart response to this, this rending of the relationship that's happening in the name of justice. Incarcerating kids with their mothers is not the way to solve this problem. Yeah, I don't think you need to convince anyone of that. It's the more you talk about Lee, this, Lee, the sadder and more troubling that. it becomes. You're, you're a professor of law at the University of Maryland um, and the co-director of the clinical law program there. How, how do your fellow law professors and the law community, how do they respond to this kind of argument, which probably initially might seem quite controversial and provocative? Are you beginning to win over converts? I think so. I would say initially people were pretty resistant to the idea that the criminal legal system was doing harm. And, you know, I started talking about this 25 years ago when people were very resistant to the idea that intervening through the criminal legal system was anything but the best possible outcome. The Violence Against Women Act was putting hundreds of millions of dollars into the criminal legal system's response. It was seen as kind of the best piece of legislation that had ever been passed, a model for the world. The United States was exporting these ideas all over the world. The State Department would have groups of people come in to talk about the ways in which the United States was doing this work through the criminal legal system. And sometimes I would talk to those groups and kind of say, wait a minute, there is another way to look at this. I think since the murder of George Floyd and kind of the sea change in the way that many of us look at the criminal legal system in the United States, these ideas have become less outlandish, although they still are, are difficult for people. And I think particularly for progressive people because they bring two core commitments into tension. The idea that we should be doing something about intimate partner violence, about gender-based violence. We should be taking that violence seriously, but also that mass incarceration is a problem and the criminal injustice system are a problem and we shouldn't be using them quite so liberally. When those ideas come into tension, people really don't know what to do with that. And what I've been suggesting that they do with that is to see that the criminal legal system is not doing the work that we have told victims that it is doing. It's not decreasing violence, it's not deterring violence. And so it's not such a huge step then to say there are better ways to do this work. And I would say these ideas are certainly much easier for people to hear than they were when I first started talking about them 20 years ago. Yeah, and it's all too easy to tell people tell stuff to people that make them feel better. It's important to be honest here. Um, you have this phrase, abolition feminism, in, in the title of the book. What exactly is that? Abolition feminism is a feminism that rejects the carceral intervention of state systems. And it builds on the work of feminists of color, particularly black feminists, people like Dr. Angela Davis, Dr. Beth Ritchie, Andrea Ritchie, people who have for years been talking about the ways in which the carceral state is fundamentally at odds with feminism. So as prominent abolitionist Miriam Kaba says, prison is not feminist. And so that the idea here is that in the name of feminism, we should not be using 
the carceral state to inflict the kind of harm that we are inflicting. Um, it's a pretty simple idea. And the way that it plays out in terms of the argument in the book is that rather than using the criminal legal system to punish victims of violence, we should be looking at other things that we can do to dismantle that system and build up systems that meaningfully address harm, provide support within communities, and stop relying on the criminal legal system to solve our social problems. Well, the book is out uh, at the end of the month, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. Uh, Lee, you wrote that you're proud of the book, um, but you also acknowledge I would end the book very differently now. If you were rewriting the book, and uh, what would you say? Of course, we want everyone to read the book, but I assume you'll come out with a second volume or maybe a different intro when the book comes out next year. How have you changed your mind since finishing the book? So that actually refers to my second book, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence. And in that second book, I make this argument that intimate partner violence is neither decreased nor deterred by the criminal legal system. But at the end of that book said, decriminalizing domestic violence is unlikely, which I still believe to be true, and probably unwise. I punted essentially, because I wasn't yet ready to really grapple with what it would mean to decriminalize domestic violence, to stop relying on police and prosecutors and courts. Abolition, fem the book I've written now, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism, is kind of the next step in that journey. And it is the book that writes that, that problem. It's the book where I say for the first time, I am an abolitionist. I no longer believe in these systems. I no longer believe that they do justice. I no longer believe that they should exist and that we have to dismantle the criminal legal system and the quasi-carceral systems around it, like say the child policing system, the family policing system that are doing so much harm to victims of intimate partner violence and other forms of gender-based violence. So the end of decriminalizing domestic violence I took flack kind of in two ways, some from people saying, you're crazy, this is a horrible idea and completely dangerous, and you didn't go far enough. So I've chosen to keep going. Um, I absolutely identify as an abolitionist now, and I credit the clients that I've worked with who are incarcerated over the last nine years for getting me there. I've had the opportunity to work with people who are absolutely wonderful people, lovely, warm, empathetic, caring people, who have also been branded murderers by this society. And having that experience taught me that this system is not going to ever bring us to the place where we wanna be in this country, not at, in terms of gender-based violence, not in terms of any kind of violence. That's what made me an abolitionist and uh, Imperfect Victims is really the answer to that critique of that second book. Excellent.